Hello, welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention. Each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner, and today we'll be chatting with Dr. Rachel Aldred from the University of Westminster. In particular, we will be discussing her just published paper, How Does Mode of Travel Affect Risks Posed to Other Road Users? Rachel joined the University of Westminster in 2012 from the University of East London, where she lectured in sociology. Her main interests are in sustainable mobilities and especially in active transport. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Rod. So it seems to me this turns research almost on its head. Um, How did you start to think about this topic? Exactly, Rod. Um, So one of the most exciting things about this paper that we've just published is that it looks at road safety with it kind of turns the lens around, really, because Mm -hmm. traditionally road safety analysis um, has looked at the risk that you have, say, cycling or driving of being injured or killed. But this turns it around and says, well, actually, how likely are you to kill or injure other people? And there has been some work already on this topic, but not very much, and certainly nothing that's looked at the range of different transport modes that we've looked at. Um, and really, it's, it, it is in line, I think, with the shift in policy that has started to happen in a number of places where policymakers, particularly influenced by um, debates around the health impacts of transport and thinking of transport as potentially promoting health, have started to think about this risk to others as a really important part of the picture that we've not really been measuring and analysing as we should have done. So there are two things in there that I'd like to explore if I could. One is this notion of transport as a determinant of health, but the other is this personal risk versus a collective responsibility. There's a tendency for us to feel we could manage our own risks about us, and uh, that's pretty much as far as my responsibility lies. You've actually shifted, as you say, the lens, but also um, quite a different concept of what our responsibility is on the road. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think, and this is partly where my background has got me interested in this, because my background is in sociology, um, not not in transport originally. Mm -hmm. So I'm Mm -hmm. kind of interested in um, bringing some of the way that we think about public space, interactions, responsibility and other areas of life into transport. And it struck me when I first started looking at this area that um, things seem to work quite differently in the transport space than in, say, other forms of public space. And that somehow uh, notions of responsibility to others um, don't somehow seem to work in the same way, which I found interesting that, um, for instance, the um, smoking debate and secondhand smoke um, is kind of widely accepted now in many countries that you know um, causing other people to breathe your tobacco smoke is not a good thing and could harm their health and is is a problem and should be restricted Um, and yet the way that our transport systems work involves massive amounts of exposure to harmful um, air pollutants and in a sense people when they drive are not encouraged um, to think about that to think about the risks that they impose on others And, and similarly with injury as well I think and we know that people generally think you have a right to take certain risks with your own health your own life that you don't have to impose on others and getting that kind of thinking into transport really I guess is my interest here. And that um, brings in the complex issue of of risk acceptance risk appreciation. Um, If we designed a system that gave an individual the freedom to make determinants about risk they're prepared to accept um, 
does that affect the generic ambient risk that the comes from the design of the transport system? So the interplay between allowing an individual freedom and decreasing the freedom of those around them. Yes, and I think the social sciences can help us understand um, the societal determinants as well as the individual determinants of how people think about risk. And I think when we talk about the transport system, um, we also need to think about the way in which um, planning in many countries from the sort of 1950s and potentially even earlier has really put private motorised transport um, at the heart of things and that planning has been based around an assumption that people will choose to drive and that this will be the dominant mode of transport and I think that in this area that has really helped obscure some of the impact that this has had on the freedom of people to walk and cycle safely for instance the, the focus on um, keeping um, people safe within their cars um, and really an abdication of responsibility for the people outside the car and we've seen the results of that for instance um, in uh, the UK we've seen cycling go from around a quarter of all trips in the immediate post-war period um, around the late 40s uh, to going to one or two percent of all trips in the early 1970s and also a decline in walking um, although that was less well measured in those years so I, th I think we have to think about general issues around how people think about risk, but also specifics of the transport sphere. And and what did your paper find? What did your risk? What was the main interesting finding you came up with? Um, maybe I'll start with the finding around gender because this is really intriguing and this mm -hmm. is um, quite novel. So there has been um, previous work looking at. Um, transport risk and gender but the interesting thing about this paper is firstly that it looks at risks posed to others um, mm -hmm. and secondly that we look at six different transport modes so we're able to look um, not just at say um, driving a car and riding a, a pedal cycle but also at HGV lorry driving um, bus driving and, and so on so we've got we've got these um, six modes of transport and we're able to compare the risk posed to others so that the fatalities to other road users per kilometer per billion kilometer um, when you've got a man driving versus when you've got a woman driving for all of these six transport modes and it's really interesting how generally consistent the pattern is so for all of those modes the point estimate um, the the um, death fatalities per billion kilometers um, with a male driver is higher than for women. It's statistically significant in five out of the six. Um, and what's really also interesting along with that is the extent to which driving jobs and driving related jobs are still so male dominated. So um, for the most dangerous vehicles, um, so for, for lorries, HGVs, which cause a very high death toll per, per kilometer, um, basically 95% of lorry drivers are male. So this brings something new into the conversation, I think. So there's discussions about, um, you know, restricting the most dangerous vehicles, about improving their design, um, and, and about education training, about road design and so on. But this uh, actually finding, I think, should cause us to ask, well, why don't we think also about greater gender equity in these driving jobs? And this too, could have a positive impact on injuries. Yes, I understand that because it, uh, if you've got a tendency for a male to have a higher crash risk, then you wouldn't want to put them in the, the vehicle with a higher risk as well, which seems to be what's happening. 
It is. I mean, there are also other reasons for thinking about the conditions. So many of these, um, which if we're talking about, say, um, commercial drivers, there are a whole load of um, issues with the, the, the conditions that they work under, which I think potentially increases um, the risk to others. So uh, it should be part of that broader conversation, I think, about what the working environment is like, um, as well as what the vehicles and the road infrastructure are like. And seeing the system as a whole is almost a sociological characteristic that you've brought to bear upon this issue. Yes, I think so. And I, I would um, I would stress that it's not about blaming individuals. It's not about saying this was this person's fault. It's about saying the system as it's set up involving these kinds of vehicles, involving these kinds of drivers is leading to these kinds of outcomes and therefore trying to think about, well, how can we reduce this substantial um, burden? Because, for instance, the risk um, of being killed while you're driving a vehicle obviously large vehicles like um, lorries appear very safe because if you're driving yes. a lorry you are very safe yeah. but um, what about the risk to others and how can we quantify that how can we measure it how can we compare it by the different driver characteristics and in buses um, in terms of the the, the fatalities to um, other road users um, buses and HGVs are um, sort of in, in the same ballpark. So buses um, came out slightly higher than HGVs. Um, so they're both large vehicles. I mean, it's, it's interesting that buses tend to have safer um, cab design than do lorries. They tend to have mm -hmm. the driver sitting lower, which should be safer. But we think, we don't know, we think this may be um, mitigated by the fact that buses obviously do have to pick up and set down passengers. So they're often traveling through areas with quite high volumes of pedestrians and people crossing the road mm -hmm. to get on um, the bus. So obviously there's an issue with people's mm -hmm. exposure um, as well. So our analysis has looked at vehicle kilometers. Um, so that doesn't take into account the fact that a car is likely to be carrying around one and a half people and a bus may be carrying more like 12 um, using figures from England. Um, so actually, if you take that into account, then buses and cars per passenger, the, the, the risks to other people become more in the same ballpark. So I think you've, you have got to look at it alongside um, those, those other factors as well. And clearly, there are a lot of reasons why we'd rather have people in buses than in cars. But mm. it is still quite sobering to see that despite the measures that have been taken, um, um, to to improve to, to make buses safer and despite the probably better regulation training that you may have um, in for, for drivers the risk is still um, in our figures slightly higher um, for others per kilometer so we do need to reduce the risk posed um, to others by buses although buses there are many reasons to refer buses to cars right so that was that was one of the findings and a, a particularly relevant one to all of us uh, some other issues that came out of that you said were interesting um, yeah, I wanted to say something actually about motorcycles, the third vulnerable mode. So walking, cycling and motorcycling, the vulnerable modes because um, of the risk to the person who is doing that activity. So motorcyclists in, in the UK have a substantially higher risk of being killed per kilometre travel than people walking um, or cycling. But that, that means that they're seen very often as vulnerable. However, this analysis sort of turns it round and says, well, what about um, the risk of people that people motorcycling pose to others. And when I first saw these figures, um, I, I was kind of initially quite surprised because motorcycles are small vehicles. They're not heavy vehicles. And yet they are posing um, a risk to others per kilometre um, that is more than double um, a car or a taxi and around three times that of a van. So motorcycles, um, the risk posed to others per kilometre is in between um, 
cars, um, taxis and vans, and those heavy vehicles. So they're really posing a very high risk to others, and particularly the risk posed by male motorcyclists is very, is very high um, mm. in line with our findings on gender generally. So I, I think this helps to, to refocus the debate around motorcycles as well, and hopefully to, to, to encourage um, authorities to think, well, you know, what could could we could we encourage people? Could we um, restrict the use of motorbikes? Because although they're such a small proportion of overall traffic, they are making a disproportionate um, contribution to fatalities among other road users. And in urban areas, this is disproportionately pedestrians. You've got a distinguished track record in transport research, but it's quite policy focused, isn't it? So, taking the results of this paper, what what conclusions would you draw if you were making some recommendations that might reduce some of the risks you've identified as at the transport level at the city level i think i mean obviously as a researcher more research is always needed but um mm -hmm. i do think that policymakers should be seeking to measure risk posed to others and to reduce it. So we've actually seen that happening in London with Transport for London starting to develop metrics around, okay, which road users are posing disproportionate risk um, to others. Um, and not just, for instance, as I was saying, seeing motorcyclists as vulnerable, but also measuring and trying to reduce the risk that they are posing to other road users and trying to think about how we can, when we're making decisions about trying to make the transport system healthier, um, about the other objectives that we're trying to get out of it, um, trying to reduce risk um, posed to others. I think the gender dimension is really interesting and thinking about um, how to ensure that we get a more gender balanced transport workforce is really important. I mean, so many jobs um, used to be um, male dominated and are not and yet um, if you look at HGV driving bus driving and driving instructor jobs or range of driving related jobs they are overwhelmingly male and yet this research suggests that this is linked to a larger number of deaths to other road users than would need to happen even given the current vehicle design and road environment which are very often imperfect. So the angle you've taken on this transport research is quite different from the angle that is normally reported in the literature. What was it that um, gave you this incentive to look at the problem this particular way? Well, I've been very lucky in being able to collaborate with colleagues um, who have been working on the MetaHIP project, which is a Medical Research Council methodology panel project. So this project is led by the um, Centre for Diet and Activity Research at the University of Cambridge. And part of its work is to build a model that is looking at risk experienced by road users and risk posed by road users. So it's really um, been some quite methodologically groundbreaking work and I've been lucky to be able to collaborate with them. So it's, it's the road user, it's the vehicle um, driver, it's the type of vehicle, and in the past we've normally been scoring vehicles, crashworthiness um, ratings on the vehicle's damage to its occupants, not the ability mm. of the vehicle to damage other road users. So it's about design, it's about behaviour, it's about uh, selecting the right people for the right jobs. And you've opened up a much broader range of possible interventions in that discussion than we normally think about when we talk about road safety research. So it's a particularly uh, important um, contribution to knowledge. Thank you very much for the time we've had today to talking about it. Thank you, Rod. We've been listening to Dr. Rachel Aldred from the University of Westminster. For anyone wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered, I would encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. 
Remember, you can subscribe to Injury Prevention Podcast in your favorite platform or app and have it automatically downloaded to your device each month.